Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. Today you're listening to Lessons on Leadership, our weekly conversation with inspiring people sharing some of the stories and lessons from their journey. You would ask, was it a success or was it not? Uh, talk to any POW, and I think Lee will vouch for this, that uh, the Sante raid was a great success for the improved conditions of the POWs. This, the Bin Laden raid was similar in that they crashed into the compound. One thing you guys all ought to know is that the Sante raid has been the model for raids ever since. It has been the model of how to pull off a raid because it was so well planned and so well executed, so well prepared for uh, that that it's just it's just been uh, a helpful model along the way. We have two exciting guests joining us today. Terry Buckler is the author of Who Will Go, his book about his experiences in the Vietnam War as a member of the Sante Raiders, a group of Special Operations Forces veterans whose mission became a model for planning and execution of rescue missions that still study today. We're also joined by Colonel Lee Ellis, who was a prisoner of war in various camps, including the Hanoi Hilton and Sante. This is a fascinating comparison of perspectives from one of the Raiders and one of the prisoners on this event in our history. Now let's go hear from Mr. Buckler and Mr. Ellis. Well, good morning. It's great to be together and uh, excited about a conversation with a couple of folks with different perspectives on an event in American history, but one that we can continue to learn from. Terry Buckler is the author of Who Will Go, which is a fantastic book, not just of the history, but but of some of the life lessons that you weave in there too, both from... Uh, your experiences in Vietnam and uh, and just your life growing up on a farm in Missouri and things your parents taught you and, and how all that uh, came together. A um, lot of folks, I assume, don't know a lot about Sante, so why don't you just start and tell us a little bit about your early upbringing and how you came uh, into uh, Special Forces and then became a Raider. <laughs> All right, I'll give you the 30,000 foot flyover here. Uh, I grew up on a farm, actually born on the farm, and uh, we had a small 80 acre farm that uh, we raised cattle on, and mostly cattle and hogs. And uh, on the farm, you kind of learn to do everything. That's just part of the farm life. And uh, uh, I was volunteered for the draft in uh, 1969 and went to basic training in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and did my AIT training there as well for combat engineer. From there, I went to Fort Benning, Georgia. First time I'd ever flown in an airplane was from Fort Leonard Wood to Fort Benning, Georgia. And the next five or six times I was in the air, I jumped out. So, uh, not that I don't like flying, it's just that that was the way it worked. And uh, after jump school, I went to special forces training at Fort Bragg. Uh, Camp McCall was where we did our, our jumped in there, jumped in about 70 of us in my class at that time. And we ended up graduating about 41 out of a, a combination of three classes. And uh, did uh, once you make it through Camp McCall, you then go to your group and you do your uh, MOS training. I was uh, demolitions 
And uh, of course, in special forces, you're cross-trained on the other four or five uh, MOSs. Uh, so you, you get cross-trained and I was assigned to seventh group. And uh, I was up in Natahaley National Forest training, doing uh, mountain climbing and uh, repelling. And I was working with a bunch of master sergeants and because uh, I was the youngest guy. So I got to go up and down the mountain a lot and uh, do all of the repelling to show how it's done. So I was the guinea pig, you might say, but uh, it was fun doing it and good guys to work with. Uh, I was sent back to Fort Bragg to pick up some supplies. And a while back there, uh, a buddy of mine told me that Bull Simons was looking for volunteers for uh, some kind of mission. So I thought, well, you know, Bull Simons uh, in Special Forces is an icon. And I had never met the man, but uh, knew his reputation preceded him quite uh, honorably. And uh, so I went down to the little White House, which we called it there, uh, the home of the seventh. At that time, the seventh and sixth were both uh, stationed at uh, Fort Bragg. And Bull Simons came on the stage and it got deadly quiet. There was about, I would estimate, 500 or so people in. It was packed and other uh, career officers and career NCOs had came down to hear what he had to say. Uh, uh, Bull Simons was a very uh, direct individual. He was looking for people for uh, a, ha a moderately hazardous mission, he claimed. And uh, we would be back probably by December. And uh, uh, if you were interested, uh, come back to the auditorium at 1300 hours and uh, they'll do the interview process. And uh, I was interviewed by two command sergeant majors. And uh, obviously uh, they asked me if I, some questions about my background and they knew they had my 201 file. So they knew I had no combat experience and it was kind of a green, uh, green kid on the block. But uh, they asked me if I could weld and Growing up on a farm, we had a neighbor that anytime we busted something, we'd take it up to Sam and he'd weld it. I saw Sam weld a lot, so I thought, yeah, I can weld. So I told him I could weld, and uh, they never asked that. And they asked me if I could do scuba, had done scuba qualified, which I wasn't at that time. But uh, they thanked me for my time, and I thanked them for the opportunity and uh, left there thinking, well, at least I got the interview went back to Natahaley National Forest and did my uh, mountain training up there. And Colonel, uh, our Colonel called me in one day and said, pack my bag that uh, I was going to be on a mission. And uh, so got pretty excited about that, came back to Bragg, did all the paperwork, got our shots and everything. And uh, I had been on a couple of training missions before, but I'd never had to make out our will. And on this one, we had uh, to make our will out, which I should have thought at the time, maybe that should have been an indication this is more than moderately hazardous. But uh, being 20 years old, I wasn't smart enough to think that way. So uh, I was just excited about being uh, part of the organization. I was part of the advanced team. We went down to uh, Eglin Air Force Base. Auxiliary Field number three was where we were stationed. And um, 
our our job was to uh, prepare for the other contingency group to come down later. Uh, when they went through the uh, process of interviewing everyone, they selected 109 of us. And out of that 109, 56 actually were on the mission in on the ground. And uh, we trained uh, for three months, roughly. We started out, uh, one of the things that we did as part of the advanced team was we created uh, the mock-up which uh, looked like two befores with toilet paper wrapped around them, but it was a target cloth. And uh, there was always a question whether they took it down every night because of the uh, satellites and taking pictures. But uh, the true reality was uh, it took us about four or five days to build it. So there was no way they were going to tear it down every night and put it back up. So uh, in the book, it talked about this. And one of the Air Force guys that was guarding the, that facility while we weren't there uh, said that they did not tear it down every night and it was still up even after we left for probably two or three weeks. Uh, they came in, we started the training, we did a walkthrough and we went from walking through the process to actually uh, running through the process and then uh, we started live fire. and. Uh, so we were getting the understanding and feel of what it was going to be like. We had no idea what we were going to really be doing. We felt it was some type of uh, rescue, but we really had no idea where or who. At that time, there were several aircraft sitting on tarmacs that had been hijacked, and we thought, well, maybe we're going to do that. And then uh, we did about a month into it, they introduced the H-53 choppers. And we started uh, the same process there. We would land, walk off the uh, chopper, uh, do our walk through on the camp, and then uh, move from a walk through to a run, and then again with live fire. So we were getting uh, the feel for what it was going to be like when we actually did it. All uh, most of our training. Uh, after the first month was all night training, we went through the three times the night and uh, it was a long night. Uh, the Air Force guys did a great job of keeping the uh, chow hall open for us when we got back in about 4.30 or 5 in the morning in fetus. And uh, uh, we each each element had their own little segment of what was to be accomplished on the raid as a part of red wine. I was the RTO for our element. Dan Turner, Captain Turner at that time was my, uh, ran the security for Red Wine. <clears throat> there was uh, Greenleaf, which was the assault chopper. And then Blue Boy, which was the chopper that actually was uh, for, uh, crashed uh, inside the compound. Now, the reason they crashed that inside the compound the intel wasn't really, they weren't sure what the guards were, had been told, whether they were in the case of a, a rescue, were they to execute the uh, POWs or not. So the planners felt like we had to be controlled the guards within a minute after hitting ground. And uh, so that was one of the reasons they crashed it. They wanted to get the chopper down quickly. Uh, there were three guard towers at that time. 
we took out a couple of the guard towers on the way in uh, with many guns. And then uh, the one tower that was still remaining was uh, taken out by George Petrie uh, immediately upon uh, getting on the ground. And so they did a great job of controlling the guards uh, before. And that's when they started uh, uh, going through the cells looking for uh, POWs. And uh, our job at the same time, when we were landing, just as we were setting down, <clears throat> we had also practiced uh, an alternative. We, they said we could continue the mission if we had two choppers. If we lost two choppers, we would abort because we wouldn't have the manpower to sustain uh, what we anticipated or they anticipated as far as uh, what we would encounter. So uh, as we were setting down, uh, I heard on my uh, headset, uh, plan green, which was uh, pretty uh, exciting at that time because uh, uh, plan green had 22 guys on it and they had a lot of firepower with them as well. So from that standpoint, you know, we felt like uh, we were going to uh, be uh, in some hot water there pretty quickly which we were. And, uh, but because we had practiced this so many times and rehearsed it over 170 times, everybody knew exactly what it was going to do. So when we passed the word that we wanted to plan green, uh, everybody knew on the red wine uh, element exactly what their duties were. Now the Greenleaf people uh, landed at a compound about 500 meters south of us. And uh, to our knowledge today, we're really not sure, but there was a lot of talk that they might've been Chinese there training the NVA. So uh, regardless of the Greenleaf uh, ruined the graduating class down there pretty good. And uh, the chopper pilot saw what had happened. Uh, he had drifted off. You have to remember, we went in without any lights, without any communications. And uh, it was a long three and a half hour flight and uh, our, we were flying just above treetop. We follow flying behind the C-130 that was traveling at uh, five knots uh, above stall speed. And uh, they did a fantastic job of getting us in there without any, and we refueled in the air as well. So uh, the pilots we had were just uh, remarkable in my estimation. So uh, we, we're on our way to the communications building. Dan Turner and I were a two-man team at that time. And we were headed towards the communication building because we were only 20 miles from Hanoi. And they estimated there could be anywhere from 15 to 20,000 uh, troops in the area that would not be happy with us being in their hometown. So uh, uh, when we got to the communications building, that's about the time we heard that there was negative items, uh, which items meant a uh, code word for POWs. And uh, so uh, we were told to come back to our uh, LZ. Uh, we had good intel up to a point. Uh, the CIA had made a mock-up of the compound called Barbara. And from pictures the SR-71 had taken. And we would go in with, when we weren't training or resting, 
uh, and take a, they had a little prism and you look through the prism and it was like putting you down on the ground just as though you would be there. So you, when you landed, you orient yourself immediately and it worked excellently. The other uh, first on this mission was the fact that we used uh, uh, the new scopes. Uh, our accuracy when we were practicing wasn't very, that good. Uh, actually, it was pretty bad. And uh, Bull Simons wasn't happy with that. So they found the single point uh, scope, uh, laser scope, and they ordered a couple of them in and we tested them out. And our accuracy went up to about 90 to 95%. And it was uh, a real value to the guys on the ground, those, those scopes. So um, once we realized that there wasn't any POWs, uh, we called back the, our choppers. They had landed and let us off and went over and sat down in a, uh, about a, two miles from us and waiting for them, us to call them back in. And uh, we called them back in, we loaded the choppers and we were heading home. And we thought we were safe at that time. And Dan Turner, myself and a PJ were sitting on the tail end of the H-53. And as we turned to go south, you looked over the lights of Hanoi. I mean, it was like, uh, I couldn't believe it was this, you know, I anticipated seeing something with, you know, shacks, but it was lit up like any major city in the United States was. Uh, we had been in the air maybe a minimum of maybe one to two minutes, it seemed like. And all of a sudden, our chopper took a dive, and we thought we were going down. And out the tail of our chopper flashed a big uh, orange pole. And uh, we asked, not having ever seen a SAM missile before, uh, uh, it was kind of interesting to see what one looked like up close and personal. And... Uh, uh, but our pilots did a fantastic job of dodging them and moving around them. And uh, fortunately, uh, we made it uh, back with uh, only one injury uh, or two, I guess. The Air Force, when they crashed the chopper inside the compound, the fire extinguisher fell off and broke the ankle of Sergeant Wright. And then uh, Joe Murray uh, got shot in the back of the leg on one of the guys on red wine. And uh, other than that, we suffered no casualties. And uh, they suffered several uh, casualties. So uh, you would ask, was it a success or was it not? Uh, talk to any POW, and I think Lee will vouch for this, that uh, the Sante raid was a great success for the improved conditions of the POWs. And is that kind of yeah, cap let's, off? Uh, yeah, let's... Uh, let's um go to lee and uh if you're still there i think you're uh, me there you go oh, yeah um, i'm here yeah, so while this training was going on some of that time you were in sante yeah we um we moved out in july of 1970 <clears throat> just about the time they were getting rolling and so uh there's a lot of been a lot of discussions about why we moved well, I'd been there the whole time Sante was open. I started in the Hanoi Hilton. I was an F-4 fighter pilot. My airplane was shot down in November 67. At least I thought it was. Uh, a few years later, I learned from another POW that I, we were probably the first of uh, about 10 or 12 F-4s that were blown out of the sky 
by their bomb fuses. When the, when the bombs came off, the fuse arm detonated and exploded, blowing the airplane out of the sky. And I think that's what happened to us uh, because uh, less than two seconds after the bombs came off, you can feel the bombs come off the airplane, especially with six, 750 pounds. When they drop off, it kind of goes clunk and you can feel the airplane rise up a slight amount. And uh, within two seconds, the whole airplane was blown into three pieces, which is very unusual to be hit by any kind of uh, enemy fire or surface air missiles or anything like that for it to blow up like that. So that's probably what happened. But, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it was what it was when you're flying in those situations, things happen. And so uh, I'd been spent the first eight months in the Hanoi Hilton and then uh, moved they moved about 53, 55 of us, it varied, but roughly about that number out to Sante and, uh, in the summer of 1968, spring and summer of 68. I moved out there in July and we had that group and we were in three different uh, buildings. Two of the buildings were kind of end to end in a straight line, almost as one building, but they were separate type construction. And then my building was 90 degrees to those. Now we had to name things, of course, you know, the humor of uh, things and how you named them sometimes was, um, was part of our way we dealt with things. So Sante, uh, the buildings there, I lived in the cat house. Some of the guys lived in the opium den and some lived in beer hall. So you can see it was all about an escape out of that situation in our minds. But they were good names and uh, they worked well for us. And the, the area where the guys landed, uh, of course, was right out in front. Of, I was in the beer hall and it was right in front of our window. Now, our window was blocked up. It had been, they had blocked up, uh, actually bricked up with mortar and bricks, bricked up all our windows so we couldn't see out. But they did not want us to communicate. They didn't want us to know that anybody else was even there. Of course, we had covert communication and we would take great risks to stay connected. So all of that to say, we were there for a couple of years. Most all of us were there a couple of years. Uh, we did get connected through our communication. The summer, now this was the fall of 70. Now the summer of 69, just so you have an idea, uh, torture was still very prevalent there. And in fact, the summer of 69, because of the high, what I believe, and I think most people would agree, what I believe was the pressure coming on the communists, the North Vietnamese communists, by the American people, which was led by the National, uh, Family, National League of POW Families, uh, uh, National League of POWMI Families, mostly wives, uh, and they got organized, and then they got the U.S. government to change its policy, uh, on how they were speaking out or not speaking out about our treatment and about the accounting of who is a POW, who's not alive, you know, of the people shot down, who's been captured, who's not. And then they started putting pressure worldwide. Uh, some of these wives uh, went to, some of my friends' wives went to Sweden. Some went, one lady went to, I think, 15 different countries and visited the embassy, but also met with their country delegations to put pressure on them, to put pressure on the communists about our treatment. So that was happening from uh, 69, early 69 through that summer. Well, to respond, 
they started torturing guys to sign a short one-page statement saying that they had received good treatment. And so they'd gone through the summer of 69 while the U.S. was landing guys on the moon. Uh, we were in a fight for our lives over there. There'd also been an escape from another camp in Hanoi, the zoo camp. There were three main camps in Hanoi. Hanoi Hilton was a primary, the zoo was a secondary, and then the, the plantation was the third one. And then there were three or four camps over the years, three or four camps outside of town, anywhere from 20 to 30 miles away. And then um, at the end of the war, when the linebacker bombing started again, they put half of the POWs up on the Chinese border in kind of a stowaway. I guess we were the insurance if the U.S. wiped out Hanoi during that linebacker 72 bombing. Uh, they would have uh, some guys up there and they had 205 of us up there. But back to Sante. <clears throat> so that summer of 69 was really rough. But then Ho Chi Minh died in, November, in September and it took them about a month to decide who the next leaders were when the uh, Communist Party leaders got together. And finally, that, that happened in mid-October. And within one week, they stopped all the torture. These new leaders decided it probably wasn't in their best interest to continue that. And so what they were going to do was put us in camps, build, take some old barracks and stuff and make some good looking camps, let us get out and get some sunshine, and then bring the reporters in to show us the world how well they were really treating us. So that's why we moved out of Sante. Now, there was a low well, low water situation there that summer, but I don't think, I think that was just kind of a coincidence with it uh, because uh, there'd already been uh, almost 100 guys move out of their camps at the zoo and some from uh, the Hanoi Hilton into the place that we moved to, which is about six miles away from Sante, six or eight miles away from Sante. Okay, so we moved out the summer of 68 to go to what I would call the showplace camp, okay? It had four compounds of about 50 to 55 guys each. So I think there were around 210 of us in this these four compounds in the new showplace camp, which at that time was uh, uh, a little over half of all POWs. There were only about 350 or 60 uh, POWs at that in those early years. Uh, that were in Hanoi, in the Hanoi system that we were in. Uh, the, most of us were aviators, by the way, because uh, the guys who were captured in the South often died before they ever got there living in those jungle camps. And there were some, probably 50 or 70 uh, Army POWs in another camp, but we didn't have cross flow with them. They were isolated from us, and our system was isolated from them. So uh, we moved in, in July, I think it was the uh, 18th of July, and 14th or 18th. We moved in on the 14th, I think moved out on the 18th. But anyway, we moved to another camp, which was, uh, say, about seven or eight miles away. And that night in November, you know, we were all sleeping, and it was a real – we were getting outside for many hours every day where we could exercise. We were doing push-ups, walking on our hands – getting good suntans. I mean, we were almost afraid that people would think we'd had it good for all those years. By that time, you know, I'd been there for three years. And so that night, about 1230 or so, we heard these explosions. 
And we woke up because there'd been no bombing up there since the spring of uh, 1968. So it had been two and a half years since there had been any bombing attacks on North Vietnam in our area. So this was something big. So we jumped up and, okay, what's going on? We could hear airplanes. We could hear surface air missiles. We looked out the window and we could see surface air missiles launching. And uh, so we knew something was going on, but we didn't know what, and we didn't know for sure. We, we had no idea it would be at Santay at that point. And what happened, though, was the next day, the look on the guards' faces was one of fear. And within 48 hours, they had moved us all into back to Hanoi, to the Hanoi Hilton. Now, in the old days, when we were all going through there in 65, 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, or until 70, uh, the Hanoi Hilton, the top part of it, what I'll call the top part, the northern part of it, was where the American POWs were. And there was a section, big section called Little Vegas, the Heartbreak Hotel, and New Guy Village, okay, those three main buildings. Down in the southern half of that camp, which is now the, the Hanoi Hilton was built in the 1890s by the French. It was a Bastille camp that occupied an entire block walled in uh, downtown Hanoi. The walls are about 12, 15 feet high and about five feet thick. So nobody ever escaped from that prison. It was like, you know, the Middle Ages. But that southern half was all Vietnamese prisoners. Now, the Hanoi Hilton had actually been, when the French were there, and even afterwards, it was kind of like the city jail. And it was still used as a city jail by the communists. And so it was convenient for them to start using it with us, but they still had probably six, 700 Vietnamese prisoners in the bottom half of that. Well, they started moving all them out and bringing us in from the showplace camp and from other camps so that by uh, within the next two months, they had 335 POWs all in that southern part of the Hanoi Hilton in seven rooms and then a few isolated rooms where they had the senior leaders. But most all of us were in seven major cells that were kind of end to end with each other. And some of them went at about a, uh, an angle, more like a 45 degree angle between us. But they were all connected by those outer walls. And with uh, uh, 335 of us, I went to a cell, okay, with 52 to 55 guys. And I was in there for the next 18 months. Some guys were in there as long as two years. I was part of the group, half of us that went to the Chinese border. Now, can you imagine you've been in the most you've ever seen at one time is four or five other guys in a cell. And for a long time, it was for me, for some guys, it was nobody but themselves. They were solitary. Some were in two, some were in three, some was in four. I was in a cell for four for a long time, six and a half by foot, seven foot cell. You know, that's the size of a bathroom and a gas station. And uh, for eight months, and then I went to Hanoi and I mean, went to Sante and it was still a small room, but we had uh, five guys in that cell, in a small, another small cell. Now we're in a cell open bay. It's about 25 by 65, roughly about 1,800 square feet with a pedestal uh, about, oh, 30 inches high off the floor 
that runs right down the middle. Now, some of them were around the outside, but I was running down the middle with guys sleeping on both sides. It was to sleep on to kind of get you up off the floor from the rats. And so there was a line of guys on one side and a line of guys on the other side, but there wasn't room for all of us on that sleeping pad, concrete sleeping pad. So some of us had to sleep on the floor. Now we did have uh, mosquito nets and that was a good thing. So we strung those up. We had wires and down the center to hang them onto and wire over on the wall to tie the mosquito net to. So for the next uh, 18 months, I'm going to sell with uh, 52, 53 guys. Well, that was really valuable because I was single and I learned to live with somebody really close and get along with them. <laughs> in my marriage. I've been married 46 years now. Uh, <laughs> but what was so good about it was uh, we got organized and we had uh, classes Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. We, I taught beginning French, studied the intermediate French. I, I studied, uh, I started Spanish and German. My goal was to get uh, fluent in Spanish, fluent in French and have a 2000 word vocabulary in German before we went home. Well, the good news is I accomplished all my goals. The bad news is I was there long enough to accomplish all my goals. And, uh, but we went to Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday classes. Uh, we had special programs at night. Guys would tell movies. Uh, some guy would give a presentation on architecture or wines and, and German uh, wines in the valley there and the rivers and Germany. Guys had lived all over the world. Some guys would tell us about being in Japan and what that was like. So it was just all sorts of, and we even had Toastmasters on one end of the cell two nights a week. Uh, we, Tuesday night we had informal and uh, Thursday night we had formal speeches and Toastmasters. So it just went on and on and on. We had a choir. Uh, a lot of us were doing physical things like walking on our hands and push-ups by standing on our hands, putting the feet on the wall and going up and down. And we had one guy that could do push-ups in a handstand without touching the wall. He was like an Olympic athlete. So all these different personalities and most of the guys were all aviators or air crew. Uh, we had uh, one guy who had been a, a, a PJ on a helicopter, rescue helicopter, pararescue special ops kind of guy, and a couple of guys that were uh, flight engineers or mechanics on the helicopters, uh, enlisted guys. And so we actually, in, in that Hanoi Hilton complex, when we went back in those big rooms, these guys uh, had a, uh, a workshop, an education course, and they put them through OCS or OTS, officer training school, for about six months. And when they came home, they got the, the, our leaders got Congress to pass a law allowing us to, the, the services to commission them. They were all Air Force. And so they offered these guys commissions, and these uh, sergeants were commissioned and uh, stayed in and retired uh, as uh, two of them were captains and one was a major when they retired. So it was amazing the kind of creative things that people came up with when you have to. We had a lot of very bright, well-educated guys and, uh, and, and good leadership. We were well-organized. Uh, eventually we got some cards and we had bridge clubs and our bridge uh, 
tournaments and a lot of guys played every day. And then every Sunday afternoon, we'd have a, a, a what do you call it? A bridge where you got different tables. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, so it was uh, life changed significantly for us after the Sante raid. I guess that's the bottom line because we moved back in there and had those kind of conditions. By the way, as I, I don't think I mentioned this, but when uh, after the new leadership came in, after Ho Chi Minh died, they stopped the torture. I mentioned, maybe you mentioned that, but that totally changed our lives too. So now that was uh, the fall of 69, but all that really didn't play out until early 70. And so by 70, we were starting to enjoy more of a live and let live life uh, when, the, when the raid had occurred. But now back in that big cell with that live and let live life, we had a lot more talent to draw from. And uh, it became even more live and let live. Although the communication stayed covert, we were talking through the concrete walls with a, uh, a blanket wrapped around your mouth and you're talking right through the wall. It would muffle it and they couldn't hear it outside. And some of us from one cell to the other, like, my cell was one of those that had an angle to the cell next to it. There were windows way up high in these cells. They had bars in them, but they were open windows. And so we would stand on that platform, that sleeping platform, and we could actually, with a couple of blankets folded up, I was standing there, and I was using hand codes so I could say, hi, TD, today. We had shortcuts a long time for cell phones. TD, <laughs> we, G-O-T. L T R S period. Okay. Uh, so that's how we could communicate very quickly like that. And in fact, it was so fast that I had to have a receiver to store the information because I couldn't remember it. So, and, and I was the second string uh, communicator. The other guy, JB McCamey was first primary guy and I was a secondary guy, but uh, in that cell, usually I was a communicator in every cell, the lead communicator in every cell I was in because I was just, I grew up on a farm like uh, like uh, my friend here. And uh, and so I'm very sneaky and uh, I'm a good risk taker. Uh, you know, fighter pilots tend to be good risk takers. Otherwise you die because you're always right on the edge. And so uh, I'd become the uh, communicator and it just kept me busy. But I couldn't remember all that. So this whole bunch of information is coming at me quick. So I'm standing up there and I just say it out loud. And one of the guys in my cell was brilliant guy. His IQ was well over 160. And so he, uh, uh, he would, he organized a memory bank. He called them his amoebas because each person would remember one piece of information at a time, only one piece of information. He would stand there and listen to them and he would push them away. Go sit down on the, go sit down over there on the floor. And we didn't have any chairs. Go sit on the floor over there and memorize that piece of information and then come back in a few minutes. So we had about 10 amoebas and he would line them up. And as I would throw out a piece of information, like uh, commander says, so and so and so and so. He'd push him away, go sit down, memorize that, and come back. So each amoeba might have memorized two or three pieces of information. And then that night, at the end of the day, they would debrief it to the whole room. Uh, but also, we had some guys on the wall down to the end of the cell 
with the adjacent cell and they were passing that information through to them who were passing it through to the cell on the other side of them so we could communicate with all 335 guys over a period you know, of an hour or so, messages could be passed from one side all the way to the other. And some of that was business and some of it was just fun stuff, you know, information. Uh, we would get in arguments about what year it was or who was a champion in the World Series of 1959 or something like that. And so they would send out a question who it was and somebody would answer it. And uh, so what came to be known as Hanoi facts, that means is somebody who's sure it's true, but we don't know if it really is because we got no way to prove it. But for now, it's a Hanoi fact, and it's what we'll believe until we find out something better. So anyway, that kind of gives you an idea of what life was like uh, after the Sontag raid. And so we found out about two months later, in uh, probably January or so, February, there was some bombing up there again, just a little bit. And some guys were captured and they came in and they said, well, did you hear about the raid? And we said, well, what was the raid? And they said they raided Sante. When? Well, that was like November the 21st. Oh, that what that was. That's why we moved. So then we understood what had happened. So it took us a couple of months to find out. So that kind of gives you a, uh, uh, an idea of how it's really changed our lives. I mean, it, it had gotten better moving to that show place camp, but wasn't anything like where we had all the 335, almost all the long-term POWs in Vietnam were in one camp with communications with one leader. And that made all the difference in the world. We called it Camp Unity. We had policies uh, confirmed and all that sort of stuff. And it really helped us survive uh, those last few years and come home, uh, come home in a mentally... Uh, good place. We finally, living in close like that, we realized we had to get over our bitterness. We had to get ready to go home. And, and so week by week, month by month, year by year, we kind of decompressed with teammates who had gone through a lot worse than we had and uh, living with them 24 hours a day and hearing their stories. And uh, we just kind of got rid of that, all of that pain and suffering from the past. We just kind of washed it away. So we came home uh, ready to go. We didn't want to come home still in handcuffs to them because of our bitterness and our memories. And so most all of us were able to do that. Thanks to the good old Sante Raiders. <laughs> well, Terry, I think that's, that's an awesome reminder that a lot of times we're having a positive impact and don't even know it. I'm assuming yeah. you guys flew out that night fairly disappointed and having no idea that you'd still positively impacted the POW's lives. That's very true. It was, um, you know, when we were first told what we were going to do that night, uh, we were told to meet in the auditorium while we were at Tock Lee and, uh, Colonel Sidnor and Will Simons came on stage, pulled down a big map of, uh, what was going on in uh, of Hanoi with big circle around Hanoi and another circle around Sante. And that's when Bull Simons told us where we were going to do tonight. And it got dead silent in that auditorium for about five seconds. 
And then the roof went off and people were jumping up and saying, let's go get them. I mean, we were, we were excited about the opportunity to, to go free our fellow warriors. And uh, uh, so coming home from Sante on the flight back was very uh, disheartening for all of us. Uh, we were so disappointed. Had they been there, we would have brought them home. Right? And there's no, no question about that. But knowing it wasn't until years later at some of our reunions, we uh, realized what a, the Sante raid meant to the POWs. Not only did it help, uh, it just gave them confidence that this country cared about them. And uh, like Lee said, uh, life got better for him. And, and that, that was in itself was a big move forward for him. So, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a big deal for us. And uh, we've enjoyed getting to know the Sante Raiders after we got home. We came home in February, March of 73. Over 60 days, we came home in four large groups of uh, POWs released after the, as the war ended. And that was uh, February, March. And then uh, just a couple months later, maybe six or eight weeks later, Ross Perot threw a big party in San Francisco yep. and brought the Raiders together from all over the world, flew them in and flew us in, the POWs who had lived at Sante and a few of the other our leaders to San Francisco for a long weekend of celebration. And that was, you know, they had uh, movie stars there. Uh, Red Skelton did a 30-minute entertainment. Uh, uh, all, the, all the great movie stars were Western kind of guys. Clint Eastwood was there. John uh, Wayne. Uh, yeah. But we really were there really to meet the Sante Raiders, and we really got to know them and built relationships that have lasted uh, 48 years now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's go to uh, Drew. I, I uh, love hearing your story, sir. I really do. Uh, both uh, from your uh, five and a half years in um, in Hanoi and, and as a POW, but Terry, your story. Uh, I'm fascinated um, by the fact that they brought all these people together. I would, Terry, I'd love to hear your experience and how you all did team building because you go from a bunch of people that were individually selected to come together as a team. What were some of the things you thought were the most influential way of getting all these people from all different walks of life and all different technical capabilities and personal personalities? How? What were some of the things you remember most in that team building? Uh, probably the camaraderie that was developed uh, <clears throat> on our training schedule, Friday night fights. That was actually what was, we, we had a little uh, few bar close by and uh, we would go down there and, you know, when guys get together, they get the, uh, a little bit of beer in them or they get a little braver or crazy. And, uh, but the thing that I saw out of that though, was the camaraderie that these we had and we still have today and the leadership bull simons was just an icon i mean and and uh i remember one night uh we we stayed in the old barracks back there world war ii barracks and it was a big open bay and you slept 
you know, right next to each other. And we train with ammunition or our ammo and everything, the weapons, you know, we just hung them over the side of our, our bed at night. And one night, uh, one of the uh, NCOs came back, had too much to drink and was decided he was going to go tell the bull how to run the ship. And uh, uh, needless to say, he was restrained by about three other guys and uh, the next morning, uh, Bull Simons had him out on the parade field where we did our PT. At a, his heels were locked at attention, and Bull was going up one side of him and down the other. Uh, he was basically had threatened the Bull, and uh, you don't threaten the Bull. <laughs> and uh, but the the thing that I saw out of that, uh, Bull said his piece, and that was it. It was over. And they moved on, and uh, that gentleman went on the raid with us and was an instrumental in uh, the Sante raid as well. So, uh, you know, there's a forgiveness. There's a, the leadership that Bull ex- showed to me was, you know, guys are going to be upset. Guys are going to have disagree with you, but you got to have somebody in charge. And Bull was in charge. And uh, there was about Dick Meadows was another uh, icon in special forces and Dick Meadows was the same type of guy. The, the honesty, the, the, the care they showed for their men. And, uh, I, I never will forget, you know, I was my first time in combat. And as we were, uh, after we were told what we were going to do that night, we went over to this big hangar where we had brought all of our gear with us and our ammo and our weapons and everything that night uh, when we were getting ready to get on the C-130 to take us to, to, to uh, Udorn, and uh, all those lifer guys that had been in combat numerous times come up to me and told me, you know, whatever you do, don't hesitate. And, uh, you know, and I kept telling Dan Turner, get this kid back you know, all in one piece. It was like a family. And uh, uh, I, I still respect those people today because of the what they showed to me was the type of leadership that I hope I can could pass on to uh, people that I am endeared to. So, but, uh, uh, we had our ups and downs. I mean, uh, people disagreed with certain things and, but like I say, there's only one person that's going to make the call and that was the Colonel. And when he made the call, but he listened, he listened to, uh, people. Uh, I know I was doing guard duty cause, uh, when I first went down there, we had cleared this building and they uh, put a uh, check for any bugs or anything like that. Then we put three rows of Constantino wire up around it, put a field phone out. And anybody that went in that building had to be escorted in by somebody inside the building. And Bull Sin- or Colonel Sidner or, or Bull Simons came by one day by himself and he asked me how things were going. And I, you know, he asked, I'm going to tell him, I said, well, sir, I didn't come down here to pull guard duty because at that time I was pulling guard duty. There was eight of us on guard duty. We rotated every four hours. And, uh, uh, when you weren't on guard duty, you were training with them trying to get on the team. And, uh, uh, he told me just hang tight. Things are going to change. And two weeks later they made a change and I was on, selected to be on red wine and uh you know it was 
probably the, one of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> Just the fact that uh, uh, because of, I won't say it's because I was bold, but it was because I did ask and tell, told him the truth. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't down there to pull guard dude. I could have stayed at Bragg and done that all day long, but uh, he, he recognized it and didn't hold it against me. So it was um, a good opportunity. I feel very blessed to have been a part of the Sante raid. You know, I think uh, in listening to Terry's, by the way, Terry and I were the two youngest, he was the youngest guy on the raid and I was the youngest, uh, almost, I was the one guy at Sante was three months younger than me. So pretty much generally I was the youngest guy in all my cells in those days. Because they didn't, we didn't get any you guys after '68. See, it was uh, for a long time. It was just kind of a fixed number who were long-term POWs. But in lead, I've been a leadership consultant for a coach, trainer, written books on it uh, now for more than 20 years. And when a leader has character and is genuine, authentic, then uh, people know they can speak their mind, but also when the leader makes a decision, they're going to be loyal to it because they know that uh, the leader is trustworthy. They're not doing something that's unethical or, you know, covering for themselves. So it's much easier to have trust and teamwork and be able to have that camaraderie, but also have some friction we call it creative conflict. I actually help teams learn to have creative conflict because creative conflict will keep you from making bad decisions. In, in this particular case, uh, there's one story where Bull Simons was concerned about the, the weaponry that was going to, how they're going to destroy those guard towers. And one of the Air Force guys said, well, we got many guns. We can come in there and blow them up with it before we even hit the ground. And Bull Simon said, well, show me. You better be accurate. That's right. And so the guys went out and they set up some guard towers and the guys went out and sure enough, they were accurate. And Bull Simon said, you got it. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> it was an idea that Bull Simon didn't have, but somebody challenged him and said, here's how we ought to do it. And Simon said, okay, show me. And so that's the kind of, the kind of creative conflict that good teams have where you can push back and forth. If you're the leader and you don't want anybody to push back on you, you got a problem because you're not the smartest person in the room. A lot of times on certain areas, a lot of people know more than you do. So you got to be willing to listen and then make your decision. If it's a decision at your level, you make that decision and you own it, but you've been willing to listen and maybe hear something that you didn't know that's going to help you make a better decision. And the, these, the military generally is pretty good about that. Not always, but pretty good. Uh, at least in the lower levels, I think pretty good about that. Yep. One of the, I saw Drew's question about uh, the, uh, the other raid, the, the, this, the Bin Laden raid was similar in that they crashed into the compound. One thing you guys all ought to know is that the Sante raid has been the model for raids ever since. It has been the model of how to pull off a raid because it was so well planned and so well executed, so well prepared for uh, that that it's just it's just been uh, a helpful model along the way. 
the i have to talk about the intel a lot of people think we did have didn't have very good intel but you know uh they quit taking pictures with the sr-71 because they didn't want to tip off anybody that uh sante was being looked at but the intel that we had was good i mean uh, there was a couple of things. I remember the CIA, when they made that mock-up of the compound, in front of the communication building, they actually had a little bicycle they had made. And that bicycle was only about an inch and a half long. And the one thing that I was, being from Missouri, the Oshomi State, I had to see if that was really there. And that bicycle was there. Now, we took a chainsaw in, to cut down the light poles for when we had our LZ coming back out. The only bad intel we had there was the light poles were made of concrete. So uh, chainsaws don't cut concrete with a hoot. So uh, we had to move our LZ out a little further to get the birds back in for us. But uh, uh, other than that, we had pretty darn good intel on the whole operation. <clears throat> You know, one of the things that contrasted Sante to me to a lot of organizations is a lot of organizations are very siloed and people just know their job and just do your job and keep your head down and you don't know what everybody else is doing. But you guys all knew everybody's role to the point that if anything happened and it did, you immediately flexed and adapted and, and knew just what to do. You didn't have to go back to leadership and ask, what do we do? I think that's a... Uh, a really interesting model of the way you guys trained. And uh, that was so true. I mean, we had alternate for alternates and uh, everybody knew each other's task. And, you know, within like within red wine, green leaf and blue boy, there were different elements within them as well. And when we went to plan green, uh, we didn't even stumble. We didn't think about it. We just knew, okay, plan green, we've done this. And it was just like uh, a normal exercise for us. So uh, the training, uh, one of the things I, when I talk to uh, groups, uh, we talk about training. Training is boring, but I tell you, training saved our lives because we had trained so much and knew that the alternate plan was just like a regular plan. So we, we marched on you know, on course with it. So it's important to, to train. Yeah, I love some of the uh, leadership lessons from the book here. And, and lesson two, your life is significant. So be excellent in everything you do. No matter how insignificant you think your job is, it could turn out to be a life-changing position and you talk a bit about you weren't there to do guard duty but you're doing guard duty well enough to get a ten, and you didn't know what that would lead to but you just stayed focused on doing your job well well you know uh one of them before dan turner passed away i asked him uh why he selected me as his rto and the one thing he told me he says because he said Whatever we ask you to do, you did it with a smile on your face and there was no, oh man, I got to do that. And your attitude is as important as anything. And, you know, uh, people with bad attitudes are not well received. And, uh, you know, if you're going to do it, do it right. 
Yep. I guess I'll ask both of you. Maybe we start with you, Lee. What are some lessons you took away from the raid? Well, uh, I published 14 in this book, <laughs> six for leading yourself and eight for leading others. This is uh, leading with honor, leadership lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. And I tell my story, but I'm really talking more about the leadership and the lessons we learned from that. And they, they all apply today. All those lessons apply today to every one of us. Number one is know yourself. And it kind of comes back to uh, a lot of what uh, we've been hearing today. And that is that you have to learn to manage yourself. Uh, Terry managed himself. You know, he knew what who, who he was and who he wanted to be. And he managed himself in that way. So uh, I think for me, just thinking about what you're talking about, I learned to uh, do anything, okay? In a POW camp, you never know what you're gonna have to do. Uh, you might be washing the dishes, you might be sweeping the floor, you might be cleaning the crapper, okay? And so we all had to do it or empty the bucket. In our four, six, uh, six and a half by seven foot cell, we had one, three, about a, probably about a three or four gallon bucket in our cell. And thank goodness it had lid. That was our toilet. <laughs> and you had to empty it every morning. So, you know, you just learn to do anything. And whatever you do, you just learn as part of life. Just go do it and do it the best you can. And uh, so in my early life after I came home, I was willing to, I'm willing to do anything. You know, if you want sports swept and need to be swept and nobody else, I'll sweep it. It doesn't matter to me what I'm doing. If I'm contributing to the mission, uh, then I want to do it. You know, my wife needs help. I go in and wash the dishes and <laughs> she cooks. Now our kids are all grown, you know, we're empty nests. And so I wash the dishes almost every night. Well, we have a dishwasher, but I rinse them off and put them in there because I just want to be a contributor. I want to be a good teammate. And if that helps her, it helps me. So, you know, I go at it. <laughs> I think it's just, uh, you know, we learned, I think Terry's team, they learned so much about being teammates and uh, uh, the camaraderie there. And I think in the military, we learned that anyway. But in, the, in yep. the special forces, you do that. In the POW camp, you learned a lot about camaraderie and the value of taking care of your teammates. We lived in that cell I told you for 18 months with 50 something guys and uh, we only had twice when somebody raised their voice at another person. Can you imagine that? Okay. Wow. These are hard nosed, uh, aggressive guys, egotistical guys. <laughs> and so, and, and both times they apologized before we went to bed. So we learned to live with each other and accept each other and to really focus on changing ourselves. We know we could see we weren't gonna change them. They could change, but we just had to change ourselves and not worry about them. I wanted to mention, you see Eddie on your screen there. Eddie is a, a former special forces guy and he's on our team now and uh, does great work and does whatever needs to be done. Eddie does it and enjoyed having him. So I wanted to mention, I invited him in today because of his special forces background and, and knowing what it was gonna be. So thank you all for having us today. Yes. I, I, one of the things that I have always been strong on is humor. And I think the POW is, I, I, I love to hear their stories because they don't talk about their beatings. They talk about what happened after the beating or things like that. And their humor, their sense of humor, I think is one of the things that carried a lot of those men through. Yeah. And uh, it's, 
it's it's always a joy. I always look forward to hearing them talk and you know, at our reunions, they'll get together and start telling some, they may be war stories, but they're damn good ones. <laughs> and uh, I love the humor they bring to the table. And that's also, one of your uh, lessons you point out in the book is that humor helps us get through yep. tough times. Yep. So exactly. true. I want to throw out one more thing on that. Uh, right now, we're almost, uh, we'll, in the next uh, 60 days, we'll be finished with the draft of a new book called Captured by Love, Inspiring True Romance Stories from Vietnam POWs. There are 20 stories, probably about 20 stories in there. Uh, each one's one chapter. But one of the things we found out in these uh, romance stories, it's about a third were married and divorced and remarried when they came home. And then a third were stayed married and they've been married over 60 years, most of them. And a third were like me, were single and came home and got married. And we've been married 46, 47 years now. So uh, out of that, though, humor was one of the big camaraderie, companionship, friendship, being able to tolerate each other and caring about each other like we do in the POW camps and the special forces. But also that humor is a big deal in those good relationships. Amen. That is so true. So Terry, let's close that with you. What are uh, some of the lessons you took away from the raid? Well, uh, there was a lot of lessons, you know, 20 years old. I look back on it and I think, you know, uh, I, I never had dreamed of ever being in such a involvement uh, on growing up on a farm, uh, going to North Vietnam never even crossed my mind, but I, I, I thank the good Lord every day for uh, allowing me to be a part of uh, such a uh, historical event. But the, the thing that I learned the most is, you know, that each one of us is replaceable. And, you know, when you think you're so important that you can't be replaced, then you better start looking around you because you're going to be replaced. <laughs> And uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, I, I always feel like if there's no job, like, like Lee said, you know, burning the crap or dumping the crappers, that's just, you know, that was part of your, your duty and you did it and you did it with pride. And uh, I, I think anybody that uh, uh, gets the idea that they're greater than they think they are, then they got some serious problems because uh, you know, each one of us is replaceable. And I think that's really in special forces, you know, we operate in 12 man teams and we're cross trained on each other's jobs. And that's the way it was in Zante. You know, we were cross trained on the uh, different elements that we were in. You know, I could have picked up a, the M79 grenade launcher and done what McGuire did. And in turn, he could have grabbed a prick 25 off my back and been the RTO. That's just the way we operated. And uh, uh, that's a part of what life is. You, you have to face what you can do, do a good job. If you can't, uh, learn it. Yeah. It was awesome spending time with you guys. Um, <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, I, I could sit and listen to this all day. 
You got so many uh, great lessons and, and it's amazing reading the two books. It's like you guys got together and wrote them because you hit a lot of the same, uh, same themes. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lee's a lot better writer than I am though. <laughs> not so, not so. I loved your book. Thank you. A lot too. Uh, I think the part of the book that I like the most was the different, there's over 40 stories from POWs, Raiders, uh, people that are on the support team. And that's something, too, that, you know, uh, there was 109 men selected and only 56 went on the mission. But we had the support of all 109. And, and that was an important part of it, too. You know, we each one of us could be replaced because Bull told us that night, when he said where we were going, if anybody wanted to back out, now's the time to do it. And not any, no one backed out, but we, they could have if they wanted to. But uh, just, you know, you got to have faith in one another and, and trust that the man next to you, to your left and right, is going to look after you as well. So. <clears throat> You said in the book that if this was moderately dangerous, you didn't want to know what real dangerous was. Did, <laughs> did he ever tell you? <laughs> no, he, he never, never let me know what that was. But uh, uh, we always kind of kidded about that uh, among us. You know, what's the bull called real dangerous, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, he told us we had a 50-50 chance of not making it back. Uh, that was... At uh, 20 years old, uh, you know, a lot goes through your mind. Not much in my mind, but uh, the, the, the flight in, we had uh, three and a half hours to sit and think about it. And, uh, you know, the, the guys were either praying or sleeping. And I think they were praying uh, as we sat on the chopper waiting, waiting to take off and then land at Sante. <clears throat> Well, thanks so much, guys. I love spending time with you and love hearing these stories. And I know everybody on here uh, was positively impacted by uh, what you shared today. Well, thank you for this thank opportunity. You. Great. Keep, Great uh, keep, keep spreading your word. <laughs> Very good. Thanks, Randy. All thank right. You. Thanks, guys. Everybody thank have a good weekend. Yep. You thank too. You. Thank you. you.